0: Jump right into it. We'll go into this a little bit more, but as you can see, that's a outline of the country itself, and then the red right dot represents the approximate location of the actual city of Mariupol. Um, so, the topic just, even though it's not covered much in Western media these days, the crisis is still going on. There's still quite a bit of death and destruction, and Mariupol has been a flashpoint. It continues to be. Um, <laughs> Not many of the reports again make our news, but uh, that's the especially the more that's the specialist location of quite a few ceasefire violations every single day. All right. So, here I'm just going to give kind of a brief overview of the crisis itself for those who may or may not be familiar with it. Um, I won't touch on every single one, uh, but as some people know, the uh, the crisis began after then President Yanukovych suspended negotiations for greater integration with the European Union. Um, lots of people were protesting in Kiev and other major cities. Um, eventually, there were some deaths in some of the protests. These were blamed on police. I believe there were even some police officers who were killed. And the violence were obviously um, a lot of that. A lot of the blame for that. Um, then, shortly after the, the violence spiked, he signed a constitution deal that would have returned Ukraine to a previous version of its constitution. Shortly after that, though, he fled Kiev, and then he was impeached. Um, it caused a bit of controversy because he was impeached under the current version of the constitution, and the procedures for impeaching him would have changed if the deal that he had signed, returning it to the earlier constitution, had gone into effect. So there was some question over whether or not his impeachment was legal. There was a lot of argument around that, but he did flee the country and he did even um, he did even give up his position as president from outside the country. So, the the crisis continued. You saw um, protests on both sides. Eventually, protests sparked in Donetsk, which is a city it's, it's one of the states in Ukraine, but it's also a city to the north of Mariupol. Um, with, uh, with Russia getting involved in Crimea, they were eventually expelled from the G8. Um, then you saw protests spike again. You saw protesters seizing government buildings in Donetsk. And then Luhansk is another state. It's further north of the state of um, Donetsk. Um, then you can see there, towards the middle, uh, Malaysian Airlines 17 was shot down. Um, then came the Minsk-1 uh, agreement, um, one of the first major attempts at a ceasefire, but then the very next day, um, shelling of Mariupol resumed. So um, similar with the Minsk-2 there at the end, the, the ceasefire agreements, although they were usually hailed, especially in Western media, they typically didn't have much of an effect on actually reducing the violence you saw not only violations of the ceasefire; you saw specifically prohibited weapons being used within days of those agreements being signed. So now just some quick history on the city itself. You can see there's a map there showing the states of Donetsk and Luhansk, the city of Donetsk itself, which was the regional capital of that state until it was taken by the Russian-backed separatists, and then Mariupol there, further to the south, Um, that whole region of of those two states is commonly referred to as Donbass, so the title of the presentation was Mariupol, the Gates of Donbass. There's not an official border to the region called Donbass, but it's typically accepted that it's those two states. So the city of Mariupol was first founded as Pavlovsk in 1778. It had been a settlement of various cultures before then, but that's when it was actually established as a city. Uh, the name was changed to Mariupol shortly thereafter. Uh, roads were built in the late 1800s. Um, it was renamed under the communists um, in 1948, but then of course after the Soviet Union, well, when, when the Soviet Union was collapsing, it was renamed to Mariupol again, and it's retained that name ever since. Next, so one of the reasons why the city is very important to both sides is because of its economy. Um, It isn't the um, most valuable economic city in the country but it is one of the most valuable in that region. So as you can see it's got some heavy machinery industries. Uh, Azov Mash is one of the largest. Um, Azov Stahl Iron and Steelworks and Illich Iron and Steelworks are the, they are the two largest in the country. The Sea Gateways to Donbass, it's the second largest shipping port, it's second only to um, Odessa. So this obviously supplies a lot of raw materials to the industries, it can export the products of those industries, it's linked by rail to several other major cities in that portion of Ukraine, so it's it's a hub. Um, and obviously uh, it being a large port, it can also be used for military purposes if necessary, so that makes it strategically important. So, on to a quick overview of the demographics. Um, As of the last official census, population was just over 475,000. It is 49% ethnic Ukrainian, 44% ethnically Russian, although 89% identify Russian as the primary language. And so, as we've seen with places like Crimea and other regions in eastern Ukraine, when you've got a region that has a heavy Russian population, a heavily influential Russian population and a lot of the people there speak Russian, Uh, Russia tends to claim that it has some kind of a responsibility to protect the people there from what they see as abuses by the local government. That's usually one of the main justifications they'll use for getting involved. So a little more detail on why the city is important for both Kiev and for the Russian-backed separatists. Um, for Kiev, obviously, it's a valuable port, the economy and industry, which we've already talked about. Um, it's the regional capital of the state right now that used to be Donetsk. Um, when the separatists took over the city of Donetsk, when it when it uh, became a part of the territory that they had taken, Kiev named Mariupol as the new regional capital. Um, and there was a point when the separatists Um, managed to push the Kiev forces out for a short time, but they have taken it back and they've held on to it. I'll go into that a bit more later. Another important aspect is that it does help to stop further expansion west. Um, There will be a map later on that shows a little more of uh, is right now. And so, with the Separatist wanting to take, obviously, the entire state of Donetsk and even more, Um, Mariupol being a major city along that line, it's going to help the Kiev government stop that expansion. So a lot of the same reasons make it important for the separatists. A couple ones that are different is that it would be a symbolic victory for them. Just taking one more city, especially the second city to become the regional capital, would be a serious blow to the morale of the Kiev-backed forces. Um, and it would be a serious boost to the morale of the Russian-backed forces. It does also provide better defensive Donetsk to the north. So um, if Kiev holds onto it, it provides more opportunities for them to try and retake Donetsk. If the separatists were to take it, it would solidify their control there. And then I'll go into this a bit more. Um, It would be the first step towards a land bridge to Crimea. Right now, the... Right now, Russia and the Russian-backed forces have no land route to the peninsula of Crimea, which does cause some problems for supply and logistics. They would still need to conquer about 300 kilometers of territory in several other cities in order to complete that land bridge, but this would be an important first step. So, so one of the solutions proposed, because they don't have a land route, is the Kerch Strait Bridge. The Kerch Strait is where the peninsula of Crimea almost meets Russia, but there is still a water route there. So the problem with this is the peninsula of Crimea is not self-sufficient. It uh, before it was taken by um, before it was um, annexed by Russia, it depended on Ukraine for fresh water, food, and electricity. Shortly after it was taken, there was a situation where some power relay stations and other important infrastructure were destroyed and. Nobody has officially claimed responsibility for that, um, but obviously accusations have gone both ways. But it does mean that Crimea has a serious problem with having um, a steady flow of especially water and electricity. And even if, even if Russia did have this bridge, it wouldn't really be able to fulfill the water and electricity needs effectively. Um, it seems like that problem is going to continue for a while. So this bridge is something that's been proposed, though, to supply some of the things that it needs. Um, The bridge is uh, being constructed by a company owned by, I might mispronounce this, Arkady Rotenberg, who is actually one of Putin's longtime friends and he's one of his Judo sparring partners. One of the interesting aspects that has come up in reporting on this bridge is that several of the reporters who have, or I'm sorry several of the workers who have been brought in to work on it and then later either released or fired have spoken to media about the fact that they've been told constantly to look busy even if they don't have anything to do um, otherwise if for any reason they're seen taking a break or not looking like they're actively working on the bridge they do risk being fired and losing all of the money that they had already worked for and been promised So a little bit more on the bridge and some problems with why even if it were to be finalized it probably will not last long and it's not even very likely that it will be finalized. First off, the cost, 4.5 million US dollars. With the cost of oil continuing to um, stagnate, uh, the funds that Russia would need for this just aren't really there, it doesn't mean that they're not going to go forward with it, but it's just going to be very difficult to get the funding that they need. Also, it's illegal according to international law. Um, It would affect the shipping through Mariupol. As you can see here, I put the bridge is only being constructed to be 35 meters high for the type of ships that go in and out of the port. It would need to be at least 50 meters high. So some experts have said Kiev needs to be actively pursuing cases in international court to stop Russia from continuing with the construction. There is an environmental impact that's a concern. Um, the The oversight and permits were, they were kind of given a rubber stamp. They weren't really uh, explored with the detail that they needed to be. So some problems with this are it's uh, it just hasn't really been explored how it's going to impact that region. Um, with that, uh, with the geography, There's seismic activity in that region and some mud volcanoes um, which means if the bridge were to be finished it probably would not last very long. The Soviets actually tried to build one a few decades ago and I believe it lasted 6 months. Granted, technology is a little bit better but those problems still persist so even with better technology it's just not a very ideal place to build a bridge. Um, And the completion has already been pushed back to 2019, so it's not even going to be on the schedule that was originally given if it's completed at all. But it hasn't stopped them from moving forward at this point. So here's another related issue that's important for the conflict, the Shirokheim Demilitarized Zone. It was, it's not actually demilitarized at this point, it was something that was proposed back in 2015 as a part of, I believe, the Minsk II agreement. Um, they were they were trying to bring it up in the negotiations. The Kiev negotiators uh, kind of stonewalled that, prevented it from actually becoming a major issue of discussion, uh, but the, the Russians and the Russian-backed separatists have continued kind of hinting that it is something they would like, and Kiev keeps opposing it as much as they can, but there is some political pressure that seems to be building in favor of it just because of a lot of the death and destruction that's going on around Shirokine and Mariupol. Um, so some of the reasons that Kiev has obviously opposed this idea is because that region actually was already taken in violation of a previous ceasefire. Um, after signing an agreement, they they went ahead and took territory, so now they're essentially saying "Let's let's, you know, Let's make an agreement that this will now become demilitarized, whereas uh, several experts and I believe even some uh, Kiev negotiators have proposed regions further east that actually would be more ideal because um, they were not taken in violation of that particular ceasefire. And then of course previous demilitarized zones, um, I read about one in Dvaltsev. Even though they were agreed to, they weren't honored, so there's really no reason for them to sign another one if what they've already agreed to hasn't even been honored. So finally, just touching on some recent developments, as I said, there have been a lot of ceasefire violations in this particular region. Um, It's the highest number, um, and that's coming, the highest number of attacks and the highest number of violations happen around Mariupol, and that's coming from the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense. Uh, The recent Easter ceasefire, was one that was particularly, uh, seemed particularly promising, at least in some of the media outlets, but again within days it was violated and you saw 394 attacks, I believe that was in the span of less than 10 days. So, one one interesting aspect is that mortar attacks are more frequent than artillery, there are several classes of artillery that are outlawed under a lot of these agreements, um, but they're still used, but it does seem that mortar attacks are kind of the more popular method and then you also have the problem of unexploded ordnance um, all throughout eastern Ukraine but especially around Mariupol and it's even reaching the point that they have to educate young children of what to do if they see an unexploded shell because children are finding them on playgrounds and out in fields and such and they don't really know what to do with them they they sometimes think that they're toys which obviously causes even more death and um, so the ceasefire violations are continuing. And then um, one, one interesting aspect of Mariupol in particular is that after the city, after the, the Kiev forces withdrew from the city in mid 2014, um, Kiev managed to retake it with the help of several paramilitary groups. Some of these are very effective. Um, some of them are funded by different Ukrainian and um, other European businessmen who are sympathetic to what Kiev is going through. Um, unfortunately, they're often attacked in the media. They're often labeled with, um, they're often labeled as neo-Nazi, um, just as a way of building political pressure against them. And that is what I have.
1: Yes. Hi, sorry for coming in late Jean from the Department of State. I wanted to make sure I, I hear your presentation. I'm very happy that you're at this <coughs> issue. The role of nomenclature is very important. Yes sir. So uh for example, the neo-Nazi part is is of debatable and it's yet the other things you have is that with facts, that kind of thing is an assertion. And it's mostly a, a, I know I know the battalion, the Azov Battalion. Yes, sir. You know, I don't know that issue very well, but it's a, of course, has to be careful with you know, labeling things depending on the source.
0: Oh, was I? I'm sorry. Was that not clear? It's it could be could have been clear, but okay. that's, But it's, that's not a big thing. The issue
1: of first of all, again, this, I'm very happy looking at this issue. Is a, is a key city. Um, some of the references you, some of the terms you use are more uh, present, typically in the in the sort of the Russian narrative. And the Western, area, and I was just wondering if that's just a bit, uh, fact, a uh, function of your sources or other things. You, you keep referring to Kiev forces, a certain set of Ukrainian forces. Right. For example, you keep using separatists, even though everyone knows there are the no real separatists. And they, these are Russian proxies. It's very much a Russian operation. By for most, not all, but for most intensive mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if you could sort of uh, respond. I don't want to take too much of your time in terms of the nomenclature, the technology you use, and whether you think it's important or not
2: excuse right. me if i may tell you the word because the problem is that ukraine was very much divided between poland and russia and mentality is totally different part wants to belong to the west and part wants to belong to russia and that's it and once they got independence they are counting they don't know what to do with it that's it
0: so the right the reason that some of those terms are being used uh it probably is mostly a function of my sources now when it comes to Talking about Kiev forces, there are forces there that aren't official government forces, so I was trying to kind of capture them. Not for Eastern Europe, if you It's not one. They're part about the Defense industry or the Ministry of Okay. There are
1: no independent battalions and haven't been
0: for quite a while. All right, I'd be interested in, in sources on that. Okay, would be happy It wasn't my intention to um, paint them in that way. It just it seemed that they're. Could be some confusion in my sources as to who exactly belonged where. So, trying to capture the idea that they were um, supported yes. from that region instead of just being, um, I guess, bandit groups. Thanks for taking
3: that mm-hmm. Yes, sir? Can you be still about like your perspectives? Maybe you can make some like, forecast of what's going on, and in case of like, full scale offensive. Do you think Ukrainian army is capable to defend Mariupol, or what the Russian strategy might be? Because as you mentioned, it's crucial for them uh, since they don't have this land corridor and they tried to seize Mariupol in uh, early 2015 when they used multi-missile ground artillery system against civilians, where like dozens of people were killed, like in just a couple days. So what are your perspectives on about the future and would, would, what what will would the next Russia military approach, I would say, including this region, and in the case of military perspective, would they escalate around Mariupol, or you expect
0: it will be some like other like parts of uh, Eastern Front? Thank right. you. So, uh, because they mentioned that this was on the record, would you mind giving your name, an affiliation, and then kind of like a one okay. sentence? Uh, uh, yeah,
3: I'm Nikolov, Ukrainian political and military correspondent.
0: Freelance. Okay. And you're you're asking kind of. I guess what my predictions are. Yeah, and what's so if your predictions? Okay. A semester, as a scholar, <laughs> <He is> pred- <laughs> <not> a
2: <group.
0: laughs> Predictions are always dangerous. Um. So. <laughs> right. Right. Of course. And this is obviously coming from um, just the perspective of a of a student pursuing this. Um. There's obviously resources that I don't have access to. Um. So as far as be really difficult to make an accurate prediction. Um, so again, this is this is just kind of my opinion on what could happen next. It does seem that um, the Ukrainian forces are holding the city fairly effectively, despite a lot of the violations. Um, I think that it's quite possible the Russian-backed um, the Russian-backed forces and the, the I want to say. The Russian-backed government, but the the, the forces that have no the forces that have taken that have taken kind of political control of some of those regions. They're probably I see them pushing more for some of the political solutions because it's easier to get political pressure, especially from some Western media outlets, by making it seem as if the Ukrainian forces are responsible for the ceasefires or for the ceasefire violations. There have been some instances of that where um, U.S. and other Western media outlets will maybe not explicitly, but implicitly place the blame for those violations on the Ukrainian government, um, and then that makes it easier for them to say something like, see, this is why we should demilitar- demilitarize Shirokine. Um, so uh, further military efforts obviously are possible, um, and but as far as... Right, I see them. I see them probably taking a hybrid approach, including the the political pressures, if that. But again, it's it's very difficult, especially for somebody in my position, to make that accurate of a prediction.
2: I just would like to tell, uh, because I'm involved with the international strategy for peace, Dr. Kristina Maja Bicic, and I'm both Polish and I'm Swiss. I'm very much accustomed for a peaceful solution and all the Chaotic situation. It's a consequence of a world t- after the Second World War was divided into Warsaw Pact and NATO. And now, Warsaw Pact doesn't exist. For me, mathematically, NATO should that is not exist now either. And we should create new competitive international organization which covers the whole world. And as long as this situation is NATO, no NATO, it will be born a lot of phenomena. Uh, curiosity and it can be very dangerous. I used to know uh, uh, ex-president of Russia, Gorbachev, mm-hmm. who, uh, very strong intellectual, with the best intention, with good future of humanity, he saw works of And he was pretty sure that NATO, as a gentleman to gentleman, would do the same. And it's my proposal to create new competitive international organization, such which can give a peace guarantee for the entire world. And my proposal is to use military for this kind of purpose, to uh, an international organization of military leaders to prevent conflict, to prevent war, and space research. It's been to jump to a higher level of civilization and culture. And that is only solution. Otherwise, you know, plenty of uh, uh, all mathematical probability of conflict can be gone.
0: Well, that's obviously much bigger than the topic of the discussion. I would appreciate any resources you can provide me on the uh, solutions that, or the, the proposals that you just gave, because it's, it's something in interesting mind I'd mind. like to read, yeah. read about. Um, but it's obviously much larger than the topic that we're
2: discussing today. But and but there's a g- You can solve when you have a, one global international agency. When you don't have anything, it will be you know, plenty of curiosity.
0: Possible. The gentleman has had his hand up for a little while. Yes, sir. Yes, uh,
4: I'm Andrew Sorokowski. I have no I appreciate your fact based approach and your citation of statistics. Um, I, I would like to ask a little clarification um, about the statistics you cite on the linguistic and ethnic composition of Ngunyu in the area. And I think it's particularly, I'd like to know how you view the relationship among ethnic identity, linguistic practice, and Political positions. Uh, I mean, in my mind, these are three very different variables, and they don't necessarily coincide. But I would like to hear your view on. Okay.
0: So, um, I would agree that those are three different variables. They're they're things that. Um, I maybe haven't delved into as much as you as with some of the others I, I would be interested in any resources that you could provide um you do see at at least it, it is very easy to try and look at this and say oh well look there's there's 44 percent Russians there so they're going to support this and it's not that simple and also some people would say you know look there's 49% ethnic Ukrainians they're going to support the Western view of things and it's not that simple um without I would say getting access to more primary sources and possibly even visiting there myself. And um, obviously, I couldn't go country to country or go region to region and speak to everybody. But without being on the ground and actually speaking with people, and again, getting access to primary resources, I don't know if I would be the one to comment specifically on how those might uh, intersect in Ukraine, especially. Um, but the concept that you that you described, I would say. Makes
1: sense. Any other right. questions? Would you take a comment? A comment. Else asking that, um, this opportunity. Uh, so it was a in terms of Shirokina, the region you mentioned, the the reason why the negotiations has been such a struggle is because the zone proposed by the Russians. Don't struggle too much trying to identify who the people are going to ask in the right sky. It's very much a Russian administration, certainly at the school. Um, they wanted the the zone, the zone, to extend to the city itself mm-hmm. to leave it unprotected. Right. You may mention this, and so I apologize, but there's a reason. So there's a very simple reason why it's been such a difficult challenge. In addition to the terrific reasons you mentioned already, mm-hmm. that wherever the Russians. Proposed that they have they have violated the agreements and just taken the territory as soon as the Ukrainian forces vacate, including in the Badassa and elsewhere. So it's a, it's a, it's a, there, one has to dig really deeply. I'm glad, I'm very happy with the response you gave to the gentleman there in terms of the ethnic and uh, linguistic issue because it's not simple at all. Two thirds of the people fighting on the Ukrainian government side in the east are Russian speakers as the primary language, mm-hmm. so I'm told so the notion so the, those who advocate that this is a kind of like east-west necessarily the ethno-linguistic conflict are missing
0: the uh, picture so I, I just just to commend you
1: on your, on, on your response
0: and then right um just to respond to that in some of the reading i've done as well you're 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 right that there's not necessarily um it's not that clean divide a lot of the i i do agree with you in Russia's role in the region, but there are also some some groups that, um, they're not necessarily, from from the resources I've read and from what I've seen, they're not necessarily patriotic towards Moscow, it's their, um, it's kind of meeting their their desires for control in the region themselves, for for control of these small regions that they've taken illegally. Um, so that also plays into how complex the issues can we be. Say- here, here. Um, Do I don't remember specific names of groups, I'm sorry, I can try and, I should have it in the list of resources that I use for this and I can try and send that to you if you would like. Thank you,
3: I'll leave my card. Okay. Thank you. It, it, uh, I guess it's also worth to mention that, so basically in the case of full-scale offensive, they won't just like conduct any offensive if you on Mariupol. On the north, there is very uh, important this water supply plant, how So basically,
2: they try to cut it somehow. I forgot the name of the village, but so course so all, all this water supply goes from this small
3: town. They, they have these facilities. So it's also like crucial. So
4: basically, they would be just more interested to cut it from the electricity and water supplies and then just
3: to uncircle somehow not just to conduct full scale offences because so like many people even like pro-Russian in Russian speakers. So my was occupied well so it was controlled by these separatists. And I would say there are separatists, uh, like combined Russian separatist course, or it was controlled in, in the uh,
2: like, two or three weeks before it was uh, liberated by Azov Battalion and other
3: uh, paramilitary organizations. Yeah but basically even as pro russian people they understood this this like Uh, separatist republics, it's actually a fake, and even they just, those who support Moscow in the beginning, and Putin, particularly the Russian Russian world, uh, they just actually changed their mind
4: to opposite, and
3: now they're more per-Ukrainian. Yeah, so, uh, basically there is no sense for them just to conduct somehow full-scale offensive
4: on the town, so they would probably circle it, cutting it from the uh, electricity and other supplies, so it's my perception. From my court
0: and my was there with a couple months ago. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, that water supply in that town. I would be interested. Yeah, I, any. I, I can show it on the map. Somebody
2: really showing it there. Yeah. And uh, there is also,
3: there, yeah, I agree that uh, Azov battalion, uh, so the, the perception of the West is they are neo Nazi. But basically, it's worth to mention that their commander, like commander, who was from the beginning, his name is Berevsky. He is a current member of Parliament and he was selected. Uh, he was um, both, uh, Elected,
2: yes,
3: elected, yes, in Kiev, in the mostly in the downtown So His district was in Kyiv downtown in 2014. So basically I would say that the rumors about their like the logical are exaggerated basically. So maybe they use some symbolics. I, I think that they do need like some sort of rebranding. But I, I don't. Well, I saw some of them. I know in person, and I don't think that just like they're too like dangerous.
2: And, and all their members, they are in, in officially as a gentleman from State Department. He was.
3: is correct. Uh, they are officially uh, incorporated to the Ministry of Interior Affairs, so it's a part of national guard right now. But there is one battalion. There is one uh, which just also need to stress the part of uh, another organization, Rights sector. It's probably the last volunteer battalion which is not still incorporated either to the Minister of Interior Affairs or to the Minister of Defense. I would say a
0: couple hundred of them, they operate in the battle zone. So, two quick things, um, and two quick things I'd like to touch on again. What you mentioned about the the town and the water supply, I mentioned the Kerch Strait Bridge and the demilitarized zone to show that. the issues in Mariupol aren't happening in a vacuum, obviously there's a lot going on in that region and it ties into everything else that's happening and then everything that's happening around that town, around that city, I'm sorry, ties back into what's going on in Mariupol. The trouble is if I were to go into all of that we would be here for hours. Um, but again, I'd be interested in any, any resources you have on that particular town in the water supply. Um, and then as far as what you were saying about the Azov Battalion, I did, I have seen some things, especially like you were saying about their rebranding, the the problems with the symbol that they've chosen and some of its historical affiliations with Nazi groups, I didn't put it up there because as he said, the, the problem with nomenclature and um, it seemed that there was some confusion with even what I said, I was not trying to make the claim that they were somehow neo-Nazi and I didn't want to put that symbol up there and go into detail on it and possibly cause even more confusion about whether or not that was my belief. Um, but I have read about the particular symbol that they're using on their flag. And I suppose that's a conversation that needs to happen internally. I don't, even then, I don't think it would be my position as an outside observer to say yes or no they should change their symbol. But again, thank you for that. And uh, as with everybody else, I'd be very interested in any resources you all could provide because I want to continue studying this topic.
4: Sir, Gordon Middleton, Pepperdine College. Yeah, thank you for your presentation this afternoon. The Kerch Bridge, Kirch Strait Bridge. You mentioned some of the both engineering, logistics, permits, um, ground situation issues with that. Mm-hmm. It seemed that you painted that as a fairly significant piece in, uh, I'll just say, the Russian strategy for the area relative to linking up with this potential land bridge. Because of all of those challenges, in the event it doesn't get finished, it only lasts six months, or whatever its political or engineering demise might be. In the event that bridge kind of goes away for any or all of those kinds of reasons, do you have any sense of what the Russian options or strategy might consider um, in the absence of that? Uh, You were asked to sort of forecast, and that's obviously challenging. But in that specific case, it seems like they have put a lot of chips on that approach. In the absence of that, however, did you get any kind of
0: sense of either what options they might be considering or might be feasible or not? The only, in, in my research, the only effective method of supplying the Crimean Peninsula with what it needs in terms of um, food and electricity and water is some kind of a land route. Um, obviously, shipping shipping overseas can supply some things, but it can't supply everything. So, uh, as you were saying, if, if the bridge didn't work, I don't see another option other than some kind of a land route. Now, whether that means taking the territory militarily or possibly trying to push for some, not not necessarily a political solution, but kind of more of a public relations solution, trying to make it seem as though ukraine was somehow preventing crimea from getting the supplies that it needed and then trying to pressure them into an agreement that would allow russian resources and supplies to move across ukrainian territory i could see them possibly trying to push something like that um because again it it would be I would say it would be fairly easy for them to get certain media outlets on their side and saying, look, Ukraine is, Ukraine is allowing these people to suffer. You guys in the West need to tell them to allow us to do X. And then obviously using that as a way of kind of um, getting a wedge in there and making it possibly easier to then, to then actually take those regions. That's, but again, without some kind of a land route, I don't, I don't know how there would be effective supply of the peninsula.
1: On that question, indigenous people of creating the Korean Tatars. their which at least has already called for a complete blockade, so that's a very strong point in Kiev's favor. Number one, number two, international law dictates that the occupying authorities are responsible for taking care of the humanitarian needs of the occupied population. So it knows Ukraine is not held responsible, legally speaking. Right. You're talk- I know you're talking about, it, talking about yeah. perceptions, public pressure, things like that. But I just want to throw that out as well. Okay. Russia has their in power and responsibility for supplying.
0: Now, to- were you saying that the Crimean Tatars are calling for a blockade of supplies from Russia specifically, no. or blockading the entire From the rest of Ukraine.
1: They have called the Ukraine Ukrainian government to
0: cut off the so, oh, they've called on the Ukrainian government to blockade the sevastopol yeah,
1: the, the representative body of the Tatar people called on the Ukrainian authorities to cut off the water, the electricity, the other things, to 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 undercut Russia's ability to hold the territory. Right. So that's a big.
0: It only you know, takes you so far, but that's a big factor in favor of Ukraine in this
2: particular
0: mm-hmm. context. And right, it uh, it is unfortunate that sometimes even though the legal responsibility would fall on Russia to make sure that people get what they need there often, um, the legality of a thing doesn't necessarily True. determine whether it actually happens. Of course if there are no more questions, I suppose we can close it. Alright, thank you for coming. <laughs>